Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. And this is Jay. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for June 16th, 2021. Uh, Apologize, first of all, for the lack of the War of the Bounty Hunters Star Wars episodes. Uh, Got one in the can, got to record the other one, and then obviously a new one for this week. We will get caught up this week, everybody. It's just with me being out of town last week and Manny's busy schedule, we just haven't been able to get that done for you. But you will have three massive Star Wars episodes coming this week, so just keep your eyes out for that. Um, Reminder, everybody, that the DC Spotlight episodes with spoilers came out yesterday as this is being released. So if you're curious about any of the DC books, go there, check them out. There are a lot of good titles. First issue of Tom Taylor's, uh, or I'm sorry, first issue of Tom King's Superman, uh, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow was fantastic. Static Season 1, number one, was also very good. We got a big bombshell uh, reveal in Nightwing 81 from Tom Taylor, which was fantastic as well. The other amazing DC title that comes out every month is Catwoman. I think Nightwing and Catwoman are the two best titles. Uh, That was really good as well from Ram V. Great characterization. So a lot of great DC books this week. So be sure you don't sleep on any of that. Did you uh, get a chance to read Nightwing? Jay, do you know what the big bombshell is? Uh, No, that was on my list to do next. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, we're not going to spoil it here. But if you do want to know, it's out there on the Internet. It's not too hard to find. Uh, so hope it wasn't spoiled for you. And if you do know what it is and you want our thoughts on it, definitely go check out that Spotlight episode either uh, on our podcast or at the Comic Boom YouTube channel. Uh, that being said, we're going to go ahead and dive into the books. Uh, a lot of great books this week from publishers other than DC. And I'm going to kick it off with Fantastic Four. We're heading to the, the Wedding of Doom. It's Bride of Doom Part 2 Royal Wedding written by Dan Slott. R.B. Silva with Luca Maresca as art. Uh, Jesus Arbatov does the colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. Mark Brooks has an awesome cover as always. And, you know, there's been many, many weddings throughout the history of the, the long history of the Fantastic Four. And they never quite go the way you think they're going to go. Or, or maybe they go exactly like you think they're going to go, right? Like there's always something that happens. There's always some shenanigans or something doesn't go quite right. And uh, I would think that the wedding of Ben Grimm and Alicia Masters, which actually was at the beginning of this uh, current volume of Fantastic Four, I think it was in issue five, was probably about the best that we've ever seen uh, a wedding go. And then Doom's head, you know, pops up right right after and um, Galactus attacking Liberia and, and whatever. So, you know, they, that was probably about the best you could you could hope for. Doom's wedding, as you expect, does not quite go that way, although he gives a very good reason for a lot of a lot of people to show up. Uh, a lot of powerful people in, in the Marvel Universe show up, and there's a very good reason for that based on the traditions of Latveria and what Doom is offering. Um, but ultimately, it kind of goes, as I said, either <laughs> as you would expect, right? It doesn't go off without a hitch. There are um, some some big goings on that, that go down right at the worst possible time. And it ends on a pretty big cliffhanger. So as always, I think Dan Slott does a great job of bringing family drama into what is at its core, a very light hearted action adventure story, uh, which is what the fantastic four title should be. It's not really a superhero book. A lot of people look at it that way, but it's, 
it's more along the lines of uh, Indiana Jones than Superman, or it should be, I think, when it's done well. So uh, I thought this was great. Um, R.B. Silva's art is is fantastic. The colors by Jesus Arbatov are done very well. Doom's characterization is great. So uh, I'm really enjoying Fantastic Four. I know there's some people that feel like it goes too slow or they just don't really care that much for Dan Slott for whatever reason. Maybe they still haven't gotten over the fact that he killed Spider-Man and had Doc Ock replace him or, or what, but I, I think he's doing a great job. I think Fantastic Four suits him. I, I, I'm like, I like his Fantastic Four run a lot better than I liked his Iron Man, his Tony Stark Iron Man run. I, I think the, the characters and the story, the style, the tone of the book just suit his creative style much better than, uh, than Iron Man. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Next book I'm going to mention uh, is also from Marvel. It's Heroes Reborn number seven. This is actually the final issue. So we've got the world of no, there's two stories as there have been throughout the, the series, uh, the world of no return written by Jason Aaron art by Aaron Cutter colors by Dean white. And then we've got the president's best friend written, but also by Jason Aaron, this time with art by Ed McGinnis, Mark Morales does inks, Matthew Wilson colors. Both stories are lettered by Corey Petit. And like I said, this is the last issue of this, um, this series, but it's not the last chapter of the story because we know next week we have Heroes Return, number one, which I, if he's going to tie everything up next issue, it must be a big issue is, is all I have to say. Um, so this hasn't been my, my favorite event, um, but I, I'll give credit where credit's due. Jason Aaron has run a very interesting event in as much as there's editor's notes thrown in. And we talked to Tim Seeley about it earlier this week about the sort of the old uh, 60s, 70s Marvel style book that he did, Marvel double feature with Nightwing teaming up with uh, the, or Nighthawk rather, <laughs> teaming up with uh, the Falcon and just how it was, it harkened back to those old, those old uh, Marvel comics of, of the 70s, as I was saying, 70s and 80s. So uh, I think there's a lot of good there. There's a lot of really good stuff but it's all subtextual. You kind of have to read into it. It's not all spoon fed, which I guess on the other hand, the other option would have been to put out a thousand crossovers and tie-ins or drag the series out. And that's not a good way to go either. So, you know, the, the basic premise still holds true. This is a world where the Avengers have never existed. Instead, the Squ Squadron Supreme has taken uh, their place and the world's just a very different place. You see a lot of the same events happen, uh, you know, uh, secret empire and civil war and, uh, all that kind of stuff, but just just different. It all plays out differently. You know, the alien costume of Venom and Carnage and, and all that sort of thing, Green Goblin, but everything is subtly shifted. And uh, clearly Mephesto has something to do with it because he is worshipped as a god in this reality. And so you just kind of wonder what exactly Mephesto is up to and, and how this has all been going. And in the first issue, we see that Blade is like the one person who does remember how the world is supposed to be. And he goes around recruiting different heroes to try to um, try to jog their memories, try to get them to remember the way reality is supposed to be. And uh, at the end of this issue, um, leading into Heroes Return, it, it looks like we're heading toward a, a big uh, face-off between the Squadron Supreme and I guess you would call him th this ver this world's version of the uh, Avengers. So I, I very much like that. I like the Aaron Cutter art. I like the callbacks in this issue, like I said, that call back to previous events in Marvel history, classic events. Um, and it's, it's been a fun series. 
but it, it does certainly feel like one of those series where when it's over and you know everything is said and done nobody's going to really remember this series um we do get the second story that kind of um really reinforces some of the things that we already knew uh as far as who's behind this and um who's been manipulating things and uh so that's kind of kind of interesting Th those backup stories have have helped to flesh out what's going on behind the scenes um they, i don't feel like they haven't always been necessary and i do feel like um and i've said this before about this this main series this heroes reborn series is that it would have been better if we could have just gotten ed mcginnis to draw the whole thing i mean it's a weekly series so it makes it kind of hard right um but if we just could have had a consistent artist uh, not all i haven't enjoyed the art all, all seven of the issues this one's really good the ed mcginnis one was pretty good there were a few other good ones along the way but there were some i didn't like either but i wish they just would have picked one artist obviously would have had to have them working on this months in advance maybe it wasn't planned out that far in advance i don't know um but again it's it's fun and it's it's kind of lighthearted and it's interesting to see you know these different uh, versions of of these characters that we've come to know and love throughout history you know peter parker is a very different spider-man and um you know different characters don't even necessarily exist others are are combined you know we had a, a scarlet witch and a quicksilver you know mashup so it's been interesting um but again it's been a bit i don't want to say forgettable but i don't think it's going to be impactful long term i don't think this is a series where people are going to be talking about it even a year from now it's just not it just doesn't feel that consequential it, it, the, the quality on it's not like super high or anything so it's been it's been okay um and i am curious to see how it all wraps up um, and I, maybe i'm wrong maybe the end will be so great it'll elevate the entire series but uh but for me it's just been okay so uh it's one of those series i definitely i don't hear a lot of people talking about it i don't see it have a big impact on social media as far as books that people talk about on the Wednesdays that they come out. So if you are really enjoying it, reach out on social media and let me know, tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Or if you're, if you can't stand it and you jumped off of it, let me know that too. Cause I'm, I'm really curious what people think about uh, the overall quality of the series. Uh, all right. Up next is the first book that Jay is going to talk about. Uh, it's from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. It's a book we've talked about every, every week it's come out. It's aliens number four. Uh, the art is by Salvador La Roca, colors by Guru EFX. Uh, Clayton Cowell handles the letters, and uh, we, we hinted at it last time, but we didn't want to spoil for you. But on the last page of issue three, Bishop showed up, uh, which, you know, Lance Henriksen, fan favorite character from Aliens. And when you're an android, you can show up, you know, 20, 20 years later in a sequel comic, and you haven't aged a day. So I, I was certainly happy to see him as, a, as an alien fan. Um, to see the Android Bishop show up. Um, but anyway, what were your thoughts about this issue, Jay? Oh, it was fun. Uh, like I said, it was nice to see Bishop. So now you get like a, like you put him in time you want, like you said, he's an, he's an Android, so he doesn't age at all, <laughs> which is kind of nice. But uh, I like this. So, you know, we got uh, pretty much, uh, well, we got Cruz uh, with Bishop, Iris, and uh, Hamilton. But I guess the last surviving Marine, I guess, trying to find a, uh, you know, survivors or whatnot. It, I like it. it. It was really good. Um, I don't want to give away the whole comic because it pretty much, you know, him trying to find, you know, uh, they're still trying to find um, one example, I guess, still, because, you know, Iris, we found out is more than what she seemed to be in the last issue. 
Danny's good. Uh, I, I like the, I love the artwork because I appreciate it because every artist can, um, you can pretty much come up with any kind of idea of like the, the main alien, you know, way, way it's going to look. So this one's the alpha and like the last panel is, uh, it's a cool looking alien. I, I like, I appreciate that a lot. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, I mean, we all know what the xenomorphs look like from the movies and from countless comics and, you know, whatnot, just having them show up in pop culture. Um, and it's always interesting when they come up with a new concept for a new sort of alien, like how do you make it look like an, a xenomorph, but still make it look distinct, you know? So they made right. the queen and they made her head bigger and flatter, kind of broader. And it was like triangle with the thing sticking out. And it's kind of the only way you can go really is just change the head <laughs> around. So I guess they follow that concept. Um, I agree with you. The art's fantastic. This, this issue. So it was really fast paced. And a lot of times when you get a fast paced comic, I feel like you read it so quickly and then you're done and you feel like, man, I wanted more. I didn't feel like I got a big chunk of story. The best thing about this comic, the way Philip Kennedy Johnson paces it, it's, it's breakneck, like action from cover to cover, but it still feels like a substantial read. You still feel like you get a big chunk of story. There's even a couple character moments in here. There's some background. We get to understand Cruz's motivation a little bit more. So yeah, I thought I thought it was fantastic, um, but much like a lot of alien stories, it, it's messy, right? Like nobody, not everybody survives alien stories, and that's as, that's how it should be, right? Like when you talk about humans versus xenomorphs, the humans are always vastly overmatched, um, and it goes back to what we were talked about before when when they first sent crews up to the station. We're like they. They know what happened on LV426 with the Nostromo, and they know what happened with the colony and the whole platoon of Marines they sent there that didn't survive. And so I understand you want to capture this alpha, but you send one guy with two Marines. Like, you know, we said it at the time. Why didn't they send like 50 Marines? If you really want this alpha, and I understand you're trying to keep it quiet or whatever, but you got to know if you send 50 Marines, probably only five are going to make it back. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's sufficiently messy, which, you know, dangerous. So it does make it feel like it's alien aliens in that way. Cause people just don't survive. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a great job by, uh, by Philip Kennedy Johnson. He's showing how much he loves aliens by, uh, by the way he's writing this book. It was cool. Like I said, they show but Bishop says something in there. It's like, uh, you know, I don't want to give away that what he says, but it's like, okay, that's true. What he says about, you know, what he is. Why wouldn't they send a bunch of bishops instead? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because I, I caught that. I didn't, even think of, I didn't even think of that, but that's a hundred percent true. It's like, why don't you just send a bunch of bishops? So they would they could have got it. Yeah, yeah, they could set everything up and then execute the plan all at once. Yeah, that. Yeah, you're you're think you're smarter than me, Jay. That that would have been the plan. <laughs> that would have been the well, way to do it. That's what I would have did, but maybe they'll do it down the road. Who knows? But uh, yes, I saw the big reveal you were talking about. It was I didn't see that coming. That was pretty cool. So I like that. I, I was going to say uh, Fantastic Four has been a fun read. The artwork has been amazing. So that, that's good. But the ending yeah. was the best part. The ending was like hilarious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah the ending of Fantastic Four was, was uh, well, pardon my pun, but it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, getting back to Alien. So if, if Philip Kennedy Johnson is listening to this, there you go. That That's your uh, that's an idea you have for a future story. Bunch of bishops going, at, going commando on, on some aliens. Uh, all right. Up next, I'm going to talk about home number three. This is from writer Julio Anta. Art is by Anna Wisnik. Colors by Brian Valenza. 
letters by Hassan Atman Elhow. And uh, I think I've, I've no, I talked about the first, I think I've talked about the first two. Um, so basically it's about um, an, an immigrant woman and her son. She tries to bring him to the United States from Guatemala because he's the target of gang violence there. And, you know, the boy's only maybe eight or nine. And so she, she just wants a better life for him. And they get separated by the border. It's a little bit political in terms of the backstory, but when he gets put under stress at the detention center after being separated from his mother, he manifests superpowers for the first time and um, he basically escapes. And then the, in the last issue we see, he manages to meet up with his aunt who lives in the United States and has a job and an apartment and all that, but his mom gets deported. So that's sort of where the, the story le leaves off. And right at the end of the last issue, this little boy, Juan, he does find out that his brother or his father rather had powers as well. Um, and that his father's sister who he's with his aunt was the one that helped to teach his father about uh, how to use his powers and how to control them. So that's kind of the situation that he finds himself in here. Um, and the, the story, it really ramps up. It, it really picks up the action in this, uh, in this issue. It goes from being a story that maybe has its roots in, you know, politics and immigration and some of those social uh, sort of issues and, and moves into a real like superhero action family drama. Um, so I, I can't really say much more about that uh, because I don't want to give it away. But the story has, it, I mean, if you read the first couple issues and you thought, oh, this is kind of slow you know, it's definitely a, a slice of life family drama kind of thing with a little bit of superhero stuff thrown in, man, this, uh, this issue three, like flips that on its head. It's all action from cover to cover. It's all about superpowers and superheroes and, and whatnot with a little bit of the social issues, uh, thrown in. So, um, the art is, is pretty solid. It suits the, the style of the story, uh, feels very indie and, uh, the color work is good as well. And, uh, I just appreciate that it's a, a chance for a Latin creator to to tell a story that has its roots in Latin issues. You know, it's about representation and giving people a, a chance to have somebody in a comic that represents what they look like and who they are. Um, and I, I think we need more of that because we definitely need more people reading comics. So I know it's kind of flying under the radar a little bit. Uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it and it's a bit of a smaller title, but I think it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, and you probably can still find issue one and two at your uh, comic shop or have your uh, comic retailer order them for you. So uh, I definitely think it's worth your time. Again, it's called Home, and it's a, it's a pretty solid read. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about the other uh, Heroes Reborn title. As I said, there, there have been a few others that have come out to kind of flesh out the world. The other one that comes out this week is called Weapon X and Final Flight. It's Freedom or Death. It's written by Ed Brisson. Art is by Roland Bochy. Colors by Chris O'Halloran and letters by Corey Petit. Um, right up front, I mean, the art is okay. Uh, it's not fantastic. It's just a little bit inconsistent at times. I feel like this artist, and I've never seen art from him before, Roland Bochy. I feel like his art would be very suited for like a crime noir. But for a, a superhero comic, even one as kind of cynical and almost post-apocalyptic as this one, um, I don't know that his art style is the best, uh, but I will say that the colors, even though they're sort of muted and, and look a little bit crime noirish by Chris O'Halloran, he chooses the color palette well because uh, you couldn't 
color this book with bright colors, uh, it wouldn't look right if you were to do that, um, even though it's very much a, a superhero story. The, the style of art that Roland Bochy has, it just isn't conducive to bright colors. I think it would show off even more flaws in his, uh, in his line. And I shouldn't say flaws. It, it just, it wouldn't suit his line work very well. Um, because again, it's, it's not real dynamic. His, his style's a little, a little static. It's a little flat. Um, but it's interesting. Like on the first, on the first page, uh, there's very much like, it almost looks like an homage to either Lois Lane cradling Superman's dead body or Superman holding Supergirl's dead body from the cover of crisis. Um, so that kind of struck me. <laughs> there's a few times where I'm like, did he pull that pose from, from somewhere else? But in terms of the story, you know, it's, it's like I said, with a lot of these heroes reborn, I mean, this is, this is weapon X it's basically alpha flight. Um, so you've got Wolverine and a bunch of other Canadian heroes uh, in this in this alternate reality, right? Where there were no Avengers and the Squadron Supreme are, they're pretty much a fascist superhero team that basically is an extended hand of the American government who in a way meddles way too much and it, it leans toward fascism. Like it's the American way, American way is the right way and everybody in the world has to do what America says. They're very much a bully uh, in this story, the, the country and the government of America and the, by extension, the Squadron Supreme are bullies as well. So they're at odds with Alpha Flight, and um, it's you know it's Ed Brisson, Brisson uh, writing here. So you know it's quality storytelling. The dialogue's very good. It's paced very well, um, and in the end, what happens? It's it's pretty sad and sort of heartbreaking and and brutal, especially as it pertains to Wolverine. But it's exactly what you would expect. In it was it's exactly what you expect from Ed Brisson telling a story in this alternate reality it couldn't have gone any other way right like ed is not one to pull punches and uh he definitely and, and i've talked to him about this on the show you can go back and listen when we had him on to talk about his kickstarter um he always finds a way to ground his stories even when they're superhero stories he always finds a touchstone or two uh just a way to ground them and make them feel like if superpowers really existed, that's always the most fantastical part of a story he writes. You could definitely see these sorts of, of political aspects or interpersonal dramas or, or uh, relationships between people. You could, you could definitely see them playing out in a very realistic way as he portrays them. And it's no different here as, as kind of sad and heartbreaking as it is. It feels very real, um, which is why it has probably more impact of, of any of the um, the other tie-ins that we've had for Heroes Reborn. And some of them have been really great. Uh, the one that Mark Bernardin wrote about uh, Spider-Man, about Peter Parker, which was a very different version of Peter Parker, was fantastic. Um, I, I mentioned the one that, that Tim Seeley wrote that was a callback and felt like very, very well done with art by Dan Jurgens, very reminiscent of the time period it was trying to evoke. So some of them have been really fantastic. Um, in fact, the one that Ryan Caddy wrote about Hyperion's origin was also very uh, impactful emotionally. So I almost feel like some of these tie-ins have been of higher quality than the main series, but maybe it's because it's, get, it's given us context to the story and they're, they're trying to tell smaller stories rather than a, a bigger story, which is easier to do in one issue as opposed to the bigger story, which even though we've got seven issues, there's been so much ground to cover. It feels like we're bar barely skimming the surface. So 
Uh, I thought this was great. Weapon X and Final Flight number one, uh, really, really solid. I, I think it would probably be one of my favorite books of the week if it had just an art style that I enjoyed a little bit more. But for me, the art was uh, was a little bit rough. So, uh, all right, well, on to the next book that uh, Jay's going to talk about. It's Captain America uh, Annual number one. This is part of the Infinite Destinies storyline. Um, and I think it's supposed to be part two, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I'm curious to get Jay's thoughts first, but this is written by Jerry Dugan. The art is by Marco Castillo. Ink assists by Vincenzo Acunza. Colors by Ruth Redmond. And letters by Joe Caramagna. Um, so yeah, it's Captain America, and he's uh, teaming up with Black Widow here. What'd you think, Jay? The story will focus pretty much around one, uh, I guess, a new character. I guess Hector, he made a it's pretty much, I guess, is a flashback of, you know, what he did wrong and where he ends up in life. And then he gets like a second chance, I guess, to fix things. He gets one of the affinity uh, stones. And the only thing I kept thinking about was his costume was Green Lantern. Maybe that's just me, but I kept thinking Green Lantern because <laughs> <laughs> the stone is green. But uh, the suit was just I don't know, ominous to the GL. But uh, the story much pretty much is uh, Hector trying to figure out i guess trying to use his powers and uh as you said captain america and black widow are trying to chase him down to you know um put him back where he needs to go because you know he uh, was found guilty for some of his crimes but he doesn't want to go back and caps like no you have to you know you gotta you know you gotta do your, your thing i like the story it was it was um it was clean there was a lot of stuff going on back and forth but i just couldn't get past the point of uh the green lantern thing <laughs> 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 I don't know what you took from it, but it was a good story. It just kind of leaves you going, okay, what, what's the next chapter? Because even Cap's like, okay, so and that's, uh, I guess the character was, was Overtime, was it the character's yeah. name? Yeah, so so he, like, yeah, and this isn't the first time he showed up. Like a lot of the other uh, infinite people that get dubbed here or infinity people, um, I think they call them infinite people because I think infinity people is a DC <laughs> DC thing from the fourth world. Um, right. But yeah, but Quantum had shown up before. Uh, we saw him in, in the Iron Man Infinite Destinies story. And now we have Overtime here. So Quantum had showed up in a, in a Miles Morales book. Now we have Overtime showing up here. So he had showed up previously. This isn't his first appearance. He was in the, uh, the Wolverine and the Infinity Watch story. Um, and they even allude to that here. They give us a flashback and... Um, so yeah, he showed up in Infinity Wars and in, uh, Infinity Number One, where he gets the gem, and then the, the most of his story is told in that Wolverine and the Infinity Watch when Loki is and Wolverine are chasing him. Um, but yeah, he has the Time Stone, so he's he's a pretty powerful character. Um, and so you you wonder, most of the people who who possess the other stones are are a mystery. But if you look in the back, it says Star is there, and she possesses the reality gem now i'm not sure why she's there because if you go and look at a checklist star is not going to show up until amazing Sp spider-man annual number two which is the very last story so if you're trying to tell this story, like I, I just didn't understand like next is black cat annual number one and we're going to find out who one of the other you know who, who wields either the power the mind or the soul gem um, so I just wasn't sure, like, why is star like, was, was, was it originally planned that the star annual was going to come out second and this overtime one was going to be third and they just forgot to change the graphic. Like, I'm, I'm not sure. And, and this is a different situation where 
like, you know, if you think back to Warlock and the Infinity Watch or what have you, where a being possessed the gem, right, and used its powers. This is completely different. At the end of the Infinity Wars uh, st- storyline event from Jerry Dugan, Adam Warlock gave the Infinity Stones sentience, right? Like he made them aware, self-aware. And the stones then chose to go out and bond with people and give them power. So it's not like, you know, Captain America and Black Widow here can can like knock out over time and just take the stone away from him. Like the stone is a part of him, just like we saw in the Iron Man annual with Quantum, where the, the stone is a, a part of him. Like it's, it can't be removed, I don't think, without taking away, without killing the person probably. So it's pretty interesting. Like why would the, the time gem or time stone choose to um, bond with somebody who's done the terrible, I mean, he's in prison, he's on death row um, in Wolverine and the Infinity Watch when when he breaks out with the power of the, the gem. So I, this was okay. I mean, it was action packed and I loved seeing the um, interaction between Black Widow and Captain America, but in a way it, it felt sort of like a little bit of a retread of that Wolverine and the infinity watch. Like he's running from black widow and captain America. We understand that, you know, what his motivations are, what um, overtime's motivations are. And we understand what the motivations of, of black widow and captain America are, but it was at the end, it, the only thing I felt like that was sort of new information here was that just like uh, when somebody, whether it be Gamora or, uh, Loki or Thanos or whoever, um, just like when the stones were just stones, inanimate objects, and people would want to go out and collect all of them so that they, because they're pow- more powerful together, and people would want that power. Just like that's the case, apparently, the, in the case of these people, these infinite, infinite people, they're going to try to get together too because they're stronger together than apart. Um, that was not hinted at whatsoever in uh in the iron man annual so that's a little bit of a new new information the other thing is that there is um there's a backup story in this one just like there was in the first one uh called infinite fury that star stars um nick fury jr the, the samuel l jackson version and uh, he meets with captain america here and they're talking about the events of what happened you know previously in the issue and um it, it definitely is like a fury level event like fury's got to get involved right with these infinite people and try to stop them from getting together or whatever they have planned. So the backup is quite, is quite good. Um, and I don't know, I didn't, I don't think I gave the credits for the backup. I mean, if you're as big of a fan of Juan Ferreira as I am, all it takes is looking at the art. <laughs> and I think he did the art pretty sure 99% sure he did the art for the backup in the Iron Man uh, annual as well, but it is by him. Uh, Juan Ferreira. It's written by Jed McKay. Letters are by Joe Caramagna, and it's just fantastic. I, I love, I love the setting, I love the layouts, and uh, I love that there's this backup story, this Fury, Infinite Fury, because it has double meaning. You know, uh, Fury's always mad, or is it to do with the Infinity Gems? Um, but I, I appreciate that throughout all the annuals, there's one like continuous thread running through them with these, uh, with these backup stories. So. Yeah. Again, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really good. And the art, I mean, can never go wrong with one for art in my mind. Yeah. I, liked, uh, I enjoyed the backup story as well. Yeah. I mean, just beautifully colored as well by one for So, 
Yeah, but uh, like I said, I was going to say, too, uh, I didn't even catch up, but I was confused about the star, too, because wasn't she, like, last year? She did, like, a, uh, a one issue, right, last year? Yeah, she, she yeah. She had one I, book, I, and that was she, it. Yeah she, yeah, she had her own book, and I, I, bought, I bought it, but I haven't read it. So, I don't know, maybe it's already known that she has that gem, and so that's why they're just putting her on there. But, I mean, I, I knew who had the time gem from from reading uh, Wolverine and the uh, and the Infinity Watch. So, yeah, I'm just not sure. I, I feel like it's a mistake that she's already revealed there, but I could be wrong. Maybe they did it on purpose. Uh, anyway, on to the next book. It's uh, Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 27. This is uh, the next part of the, the clone saga. Miles Morales is getting his own clone saga, as we've talked about before. Uh, written by Saladin Ahmed. Carmen Canero is the artist. David Curiel does the colors. Corey Petit on letters. And uh, I have to comment on the, the art and the colors first. I mean, the, Carmen Canero, is, she's just a superstar in the making. You know, um, I feel like she's... We, we've had some really great female artists on Miles Morales uh, or on Ultimate Spider-Man, right? Like Sarah Pacelli did it for a long time and her art's fantastic. And Carmen is, is living up to that legacy. Uh, I especially love her... Uh, her facial features and how much emotion she puts in the faces. And it's especially important here because, you know, we're talking about clones of Miles Morales. So with just subtle changes to, you know, facial expression and the emotion portrayed there, you, you know exactly whether you're looking at the Miles Morales we all love and root for or one of his clones. So uh, very fast paced, a lot of action. And uh, I definitely feel like, you know, unlike the first Clone Saga, the one that sort of maligned and talked about in, uh, I guess, not very fondly, uh, this Clone Saga, and I, I talked about it with the very first issue, um, it feels much more focused, much more self-contained, and it's it's doing some, Saladin Ahmed is doing something that's very important and I feel necessary for the character of Miles Morales, and that's providing stakes, right? Like we we have those classic amazing Spider-Man issues probably from like maybe one to 100, or maybe you could even say one to like 150. Cause that includes the death of Gwen Stacy there and, and green goblin and whatnot. Um, and, and that classic run from Stan Lee, what it did, well, you know, obviously we're get, getting into the uh, Jerry Conway era as well, but those early issues of, of amazing Spider-Man, they really taught Peter about, Obviously, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Everybody knows that sort of cliched line. But it taught him about the consequences of his actions, right? Like, and the stakes. Like, Aunt May was, you know, constantly in trouble. Um, married Dr. Octopus at, at one point. Uh, you know, Peter lost friends along the way. Certainly, we talk about losing Gwen Stacy, which, you know, impacted him greatly. And, you know, he carries around that sort of guilt. But he was always, he was made very aware early on in his career as Spider-Man about how dangerous it was for the people around him, which is why he always kept his secret. And not to say that Miles hasn't been careful to keep his secret, but I feel like not as careful. And certainly more people know that Miles is Spider-Man earlier on in Miles's career than Spider-Man did. I mean, for a long time, nobody knew, right? Just just him. Um, and then maybe, uh, you think maybe the Human Torch might've been the first one that knew. Daredevil found out at some point, obviously Black Cat, uh, Mary Jane, we find out in that classic, I think it's 258, 257, where she admits that she's known for quite a while. But, you know, that's much later. 
Whereas Miles, he's still in high school and any number of people know. And there's a danger in knowing. And um, we start to see some of those stakes here in, uh, in this issue. So I think Salad Sal Saladin Ahmed, it doesn't get enough credit for how incredible his accuracy and giving Miles the, the right tone and voice. I don't think uh, Saladin Ahmed gets enough credit for that. Yes, Miles Morales is a Brian Michael Bendis creation, but I feel like as much as I enjoyed him as a character, a lot of what Bendis did was on the surface. Like we've gotten to know who Miles is. We've gotten under his skin. We've understood more of his emotion and his temperament and his you know, familial ties. And again, granted, things have changed, right? Like Miles is now in the regular 616 universe rather than the ultimate universe. And, you know, he's got both his parents now and, and things are different. So Saladin maybe had a little bit more um, in terms of supporting cast and structure to, to build on and give us uh, a little more depth and understanding of Miles Morales. But he's been writing Miles for quite a while now, like over three years, and he's he's just nailing it. He's just nailing it. It's so good. Again, I feel like this is another one of those Marvel titles that not enough people talk about every time it comes out. I mean, this is fantastic stuff. This feels like classic, you know, Peter Parker, first hundred issues of Amazing Spider-Man type stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's fantastic. The art's great. The color's great. Very high quality book. And I definitely recommend reading it. Um, I mean, I've, I, as much as I like the regular Amazing Spider-Man book and you know it's definitely a legacy story I, I, this one's better <laughs> it's just better it, it's not and it's not that i like miles more as a character i'll always have a soft spot in my heart for peter parker um but just from talking like technically from a, a technical standpoint of, of what's a better comic consistently issue in and issue out in terms of art and narration and plot and story beats it's miles morales it's just better so uh, all right, uh, up to the next book I want to talk about. It's Planet Size X-Men number one and uh, sort of ties into the whole Hellfire Gala thing that's going on. It's written by Jerry Dugan. The art is by Pepe Larraz. Martea Garcia handles the colors. Clayton Cowell handles the letters. And I, I, don't, I don't really know. So I'm way behind on my X-Men stuff, right? Like we, we covered the first, uh, the first two uh, minis and we've been covering some of the the issues from Dawn of X, but we were nowhere near caught up. I hope to get caught up. So I don't know, sometime in this century. Um, so I say all that to say this, I don't know how much is known about this whole planet size giant X-Men like, or planet size X-Men, I guess it's called. I don't know how much is known about the story that's in it. So I'm going to talk very, very vague, maybe, maybe more vaguely than I need to, because maybe, more has been revealed about the story than I realize. Um, because I certainly didn't know anything about it. And when I started reading it, I was like, holy crap, wait, what's going on? What are the stakes here? Um, because this is really, this is really big. I mean, big. I mean, it's called Planet Size X-Men for a reason. And that sort of has other meanings as well. So what the X-Men do in this book is foundational in terms of a big event for the X-Men corner of the universe and really the whole Marvel universe. And, you know, it's just another example of Jonathan Hickman saying, I'm going to go big or I'm going to go home on the X-Men. And so if you're caught up on the X-Men and you kind of know what's going on, maybe you're going to see this coming, maybe not. 
if you're not caught up on the X-Men, you can still pick this up and find out what the hell I'm talking about and be blown away like I was. Like there's enough context here that you don't feel lost. So in that way, it's a, it's an incredible job by Jerry Dugan to make this accessible to, for somebody who's, you know, a year behind on X-Men books um, and still be able to understand what's going on. Uh, the other thing he does is it's really cool to see all the different mutants using their powers and the way they work together to accomplish this incredible goal they've set for themselves or this incredible mission. So I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. The Pepe Larraz art, uh, I mean, ever since I saw his art on Extermination, I think it was, exter yeah, Extermination, that five-part miniseries, I've been in love with his art. The color art by Martia Garcia is very good. The letters um, from Clayton Cowles, he does a, an incredible job of keeping the story moving along because there's a lot of great visuals here. Um, and he paces out the uh, the word balloons and the dialogue boxes excellently to, to sort of keep everything flowing. Um, it's also, you know, much like the title indicates it is a big issue. There's like 40 some pages. So you get a lot here and there's definitely going to be some fallout um, in the X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe as well as the, the Marvel Universe overall based on the events of this issue. So it, it's really, really cool what goes down. Um, and uh, I, I think this issue does something else that Marvel probably hoped it would do. At least it did for me. I read this and I'm like, man, I'm behind on X-Men, but I'm going to read this anyway. And then I read this and I think to myself, I have got to get caught up on X-Men. Like I need to be reading all the X titles every week when they come out, because this is an incredible story that Jonathan Hickman is telling. I mean, right from powers of X and house of X, I was hooked. Uh, even though it took me a little while to actually read them as a uh, long time listeners of this podcast will tell you. Um, but he's showing no signs of slowing down. Like he can, is continually raising the bar and, uh, and this planet size X-Men issues, no exception. It's just fantastic. So, uh, all right. On to the next book that Jay's going to talk about. It's Radiant Black number five. Uh, it's called Aftermath. It's from writer Kyle Higgins. The art is by Eduardo Forgado and Marcelo Costa. Colors are by Natalia Marquez. Letters by Becca Carey. Edited and designed by Michael Basudel. And this comes on the, uh, well, it's the first the first of a new arc called the unleashed echoes of sorrow part one. And this comes on the, um, the heels of last issue issue number four, where Marshall, the guy who was radiant black, the main character of the entire story, the one that Kyle Higgins came on and told us how he wanted to explore who Marshall was. Yeah. He died. He died in issue four. That's the big uh, cliffhanger. That's the big uh, bombshell that got dropped in issue number four. Um, so I hope you guys all read it. If not, I just spoil it. As much as we tried to be spoiler-free, we're spoiler-free on the, the new comics. You know, that one's a month old. Everybody was talking about it. It was amazing. Um, and so now, yeah, like it said, like the name of the, the title, The Unleashed Echoes of Sorrow. So now we're going to have the fallout of that death um, and who's, who's the new Radiant Black and what all happens. And yeah, fantastic uh, issue. What do you think, Jay? It was good, but I think they they got us with that. The writer was really good because uh, he built it up thinking, okay, Marshall, we got his backstory. You know, you kind of felt, you know, sorry for him because he was kind of a struggling writer. And then they pulled the wool under you. And now it's passed on to his, his best friend. <laughs> so I, I kind of like that little twist there. I like it that he's got the power because uh, I, I think he just uses his anger more with the, with 
with the, that, that power that he has. And, and I like that. Um, there's a lot of reveals at the end of this, like uh, who the, I guess, Radiant Red, I guess, who that character is. But I think I kind of kind of saw going of who or what it was going to be, you know, who that person might be. But now we just got a lot more questions because they were building it up uh, to the point where they're expecting, you know, the big bad to come. But at the end, we get more uh, other surprises. And then, boom, here's a big bad. Let's do this. Yeah, it, it definitely t- takes, again, they're, they're subverting our expectations, right? Like we always thought it would be Marshall. And uh, it turns out, no, that's not necessarily the case. Or, you know, you know I, I talked about it. So in the uh, if you're curious about this and you haven't had a chance to check out radiant black or or you haven't read the issue four yet or issue five obviously you can certainly you know we keep saying marshall died marshall's the marshall's not the one that died nathan is the one that died marshall's the one that has the power now so sorry that was my fault because i said marshall jay took took my cue but nathan is the one that had it first he was the writer he's the one that passed away in issue number four heroically and now marshall has the power so we should we should keep that clear the other thing i want to mention is we did do uh rocky from comic boom and i did do we went back after issue four after reading issue four and seeing that nathan died we went back and we read we reread issues one through four issues one through three with the context knowing that nathan was going to die at the issue of four and talked about if there were any clues like should we have seen this coming and then we read even the you know the first part of issue four with that same foreknowledge that Nathan was going to die and should we have seen it coming in that context. And then all up through the end of the issue where he, uh, where he dies heroically and we analyze that. So it's available on YouTube. You can go check it out and get that context. Um, and we talked about what, what we might expect next from the series. And even, uh, even Kyle Higgins and Michael Basudo on their monthly uh, Twitch stream about uh Radiant Black called Radiant Radio, they even talked about issue five as sort of a revenge piece, right? Like Marshall wants revenge for his best friend being killed. Um, But even that, you know, you talk about the rug being pulled out from under us, even that gets subverted. So, I mean, this shows really well thought out planning and twists and turns from the entire creative team that they're constantly keeping us guessing. You Just when you think you might have a guess of what's going to happen next in radiant black they find a way to, to twist it around so if you're expecting this issue to be this huge drawn out fight between marshall and the person responsible for nathan's death and marshall's going to get revenge or whatever you might be surprised with the way it all turns out and some of those reveals that jay's talking about in the end um so yeah this is a great comic this is a definitely one everybody should be reading uh we did also hear that uh, marcelo costa apparently went above and beyond while drawing issue four uh, and hurt himself, hurt his wrist, I think. And so that's why uh, Eduardo Fergato um, sort of fills in here. Although there are a few pages that Marcelo Costa uh, draws toward the end as well. So, um, and their art styles are, are uh, similar enough that you don't really even notice Um but the art is fantastic as it has been in this series from the start. So I hear people com- uh, comparing it to invincible and I sort of get that. It's a little, you know, the whole idea of a spiritual successor to invincible because it is a young hero kind of learning the ropes. 
but for me, this is much more sophisticated and better um, than Invincible. Because again, it's all about subverting expectations. And uh, Kyle Higgins himself on that, that Radiant Black, a Radiant Radio show, like I was mentioning, he talked about feeling obligated to take big swings because the, the shelves are so crowded these days. And when you're an independent book, you have to stand out. You can't just do things that people have done before. So you've got to do, he feels obligated to, to do things that are unexpected and do things that are big, you know, um, like killing off your main character in the fourth issue. So yeah, if you're not reading Radiant Black, you are 100% missing out because this is an absolutely fantastic book. I just want to say too that I, what I like about the the writing style too is um, we don't know the, the capabilities of these uh, of their powers yet because they seem to evolve and and whoever wheels they can do different things as you saw with uh, uh, Marshall's uniform you know that we never saw that I can't say because I want to give away that spoiler but remember he comes up with a new item on the suit and then the other character can do other things to the other suits you're like okay so there's more to these suits that we don't know yet it's yeah just, I mean I think these radiants are that power these, the people that get them are, are very powerful artifacts. And I think Nathan was somewhat limited by his uh, imagination. Uh, whereas Marshall, you know, he's into pop culture, he's into superheroes. So, uh, you know, it, not that the radiant black costume looks anything like green lantern, but, you know, going back to talking about the captain America annual in a way, it's <laughs> like, are these radiants like, like a green lantern ring in a way where they can, you know, if they can imagine it, they can make it happen. Um, yeah. It's clear that Marshall's, in a very short period of time is, is better at wielding his powers than, than Nathan was. Uh, Cause again, Nathan just didn't, he didn't have any context where I think Marshall, he just has a kind of a better grasp on what it might be capable of doing. So yeah, fantastic series. Uh, all right. Up next uh, first aftershock book of the week. I'm going to talk about seven swords from writer Evan Dougherty. The art is by Ricardo Latina Colors by Valentina Bianconi. Letters by Dave Sharp. Back matter designed by Charles Pritchett. Seven Swords, The Last Musketeer. So I don't, I must admit, I am not like the biggest Three Musketeers fan. I, I, I don't know their history. I haven't read the you know original novels or, or books or anything like that. But I know a little. Um, and basically what the story is, it's sort of a continuation of the classic story that you you know sort of turned on its head right like what if cardinal rishu and his purge was successful right like a lot of the three musketeer movies i have seen cardinal rishu and i think one one of the ones i'm thinking of um one of the movies i think he was played by tim curry and he was like the bad guy and you know charlie sheen was one of the three musketeers oliver pratt was another um and d'artagnan was played by Oh my God, I'm going to Chris O'Donnell. And I can't remember what the other, who the other musketeer was played by. It must've been a, another, you know, pretty big name a actor, but anyway, like they win, right? Like the, the good guys win and, and Tim Curry, the Cardinal Richau is, um, is defeated. Well, apparently in this seven sword story, that's not necessarily the case. Um, Cardinal Richau is, is, ultimately defeated but not before he not before he apparently was able to to kill um all the musketeers except for um except for d'artagnan uh so d'artagnan obviously wants revenge and 
the the title seven swords refers to him he's going to go out and try to recruit six other people to help him get his uh get his revenge and it's not just going to be other french this time you know he's going to go like get the best swordsman in england get the best swordsman from uh you know maybe america or, or wherever right um and that's what this refers to best swordsman from spain and, and whatnot and so it's it certainly feels like and again I'm not an expert on the Three Musketeers. I'm not even cl close to being knowledgeable about the Three Musketeers. But I love the period and the feel of the period of it. And it feels to me very authentic as um, a sequel to the classic Three Musketeers story. And again, I'm saying that as a Three Musketeers neophyte who knows uh, very little. Um, but I thought it was fantastic. Um, and the other, the other uh, musketeer in that in that movie was played by Kiefer Sutherland. By the way, I just looked it up. Um, so yeah, some big names. You know, you got Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie Sheen, and Oliver Platt playing the original three musketeers, and you have D'Artagnan as the fourth musketeer. All for one, one for all, that whole thing. And uh, this is action packed. The art is fantastic. I'm not familiar with Ricardo Latina's art, but uh, it is. Re done really really well there are a few times where the backgrounds get a little light and you know i can kind of understand because his line work is very detailed so you can kind of see why uh you know at times he just for the sake of being able to finish the book on time that he might uh, have to go a little light on backgrounds but the characterization of d'artagnan feels authentic to me um from what i know of him uh there's a lot of history here from the three musketeers and the, and the stories that we know uh, a lot of lore. And then that back matter that I mentioned uh, that's designed by Charles Pritchett, it gives us um, a little bit of a rundown on who some of these swords are going to be. We, we meet D'Artagnan in the first issue. We meet another character named Catalina. She has a character sheet. Um, we meet another very famous uh, literary character who apparently is going to be one of the seven swords. I'm not going to spoil it, let you know who it is. And then we meet another Spaniard uh, who's going to be one of the swords, who again is a literary figure who's very famous as well. So that's what I love about what uh, is being done here. You know, it's like, not only are, are you kind of expanding on the lore and legend of the Three Musketeers, but what Evan Darty is doing is he's pulling in these other literary figures and saying, You're, you can be a sword. You know, you could be one of the seven swords. I mean, I don't know, will we get like somebody of Asian descent? Like that would be cool, you know? Um, what, I mean, I don't know exactly the, the time period of the Three Musketeers. I mean, I think it was in the 1800s. So could you possibly get somebody from like, the, like what if like Wyatt Earp or somebody like that was a, you know, pro probably not going to go that far. Um, but I, I do find it interesting and I find, I found it fun and it was lighthearted. I thought the dialogue was really good. I felt like we had a, a good chunk of story and I really love those character sheets in the back to give us some context on who these characters are. Uh, because it did it did help to sort of flesh out um, what we're given in the story. So I thought it was absolutely fantastic. No surprise that this comes from Aftershock. They are really great at spotting talent. Uh, Evan Doherty, I'm not that familiar with him as a, as a creator. I, I want to say that I had looked him up at some point, and I think he comes from television um, or, or screenwriting or something. Um, yeah, actually, it's here in the back. Uh, he was the screenwriter for Snow White and the the Seven or Snow White and the Huntsman, uh, which he wrote while he was still in film school, uh, as well as Lion Gates Divergent. 
So yeah, he's done a few, uh, he's written a few scripts and he's worked uh, on some pilots for ABC, NBC, Sci-Fi, Hulu, and Disney. So he definitely comes from that world. Um, but man, he, he wrote himself one hell of a comic here. It was, it was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I wasn't sure that I would, you know, like I said, I'm not the biggest uh, Three Musketeers fan, but you don't need to be. You don't need to be. And, and uh, he really fe feels like, you know, it's definitely a period piece, like I said, and the art suits that, but it does feel sort of modern. You know, they're not talking in like old English or a bunch of French or something, so you can't understand it. So I thought it was really, really well done. Uh, next book I'm going to mention is also an Aftershock book. This is issue two of Silver City. It's called The Awakening. It's from Olivia Cotero Briggs. The art is by Luca Merrily. Uh, he handles the colors as well. And then Dave Sharp does the letters and we talked to Olivia. She was on the show before the first issue dropped and the first issue just, I, it had such a great reception. I was so happy for her that people really seemed to get what she was doing. And it was very impactful and very emotional and very, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a weird story. It's a little esoteric, the, the tale that she's telling about this afterlife that you go to where you still have to find a job and pay rent you know, on your apartment and find a place to live and all that sort of thing. All the mundane things about life that you really would hope to leave behind if you were dead. Um, but it made for a very compelling read. Um, and we, we know from talking to Olivia that she has this whole deeper world with, with you know, various levels, you know, think... Um, Dante and like the seven circles of hell. Um, that's sort of the, the afterlife that uh, Olivia has, uh, has envisioned here. And this silver city is only, you know, the first level. She has all this other stuff planned. Well, in this issue, we start to see a little bit of that, the rest of the world, a little bit of these, these ideas that the afterlife, as she imagines it is, you know, much bigger than just this glimpse that we're getting at, at silver city. Um, so in this issue, it's like the first issue sort of set up the emotional stakes and got us, drew us in and invested us into the character of Rue, who's the main character, uh, whose story that Olivia is telling. And in this issue, we find out how she passed away and we find out there might be a lot more to her death than what first appeared. You know, it wasn't that she just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe she was targeted. Maybe it's some uh, part of a bigger conspiracy that even ties in perhaps to goings on in the afterlife. And so, yeah, it's this much, much bigger story that uh, is going to uh, unfold. And there's a little bit of a, a mysterious aspect to it. Like this issue raised a lot of questions and the first issue raised questions in terms of, okay, let me better understand the setting and, and understand who Rue is. Um, and that's fine. There, there are, there's sort of, you know, vague questions that, you know, it's going to sort of get filled in as you read the story, as opposed to the questions that are raised here, where they're more uh, plot specific, like, oh, why is that happening? Oh, what does that mean? Oh, can you trust this character? Are they going to play a big role and that sort of thing? And so I think that first issue in a way set us up perfectly to now with the second issue, just dialing the pace and the plot up to like 10 and just going crazy. Um, and so it's, it's really fantastic. And the art by Luca Merrily, um, very much suits that as well. Uh, the, the first issue was, I felt like it was a little more watercolor, um, and a little more moody to sort of give us that feel of silver city as this afterlife, as this sort of cynical and dreary place, this purgatory, right. Where people get stuck. Um, uh, in this issue, there's a lot more oranges and reds. It's much brighter, 
which sort of suits the the faster pace and all the action that we get in the issue. So um, I'm I'm just completely hooked. Like Silver City is a fantastic story, uh, fantastic series so far, and uh, Olivia's really talented. And uh, I, I hope she gets to live in this world for a long time. I'm I'm totally hooked, and I I want to know I want to know it all, Olivia. I want to know everything you have planned. You told us that you had big plans for a huge, big, epic story, and I hope you get a chance to tell all of it because this is uh, this is just fantastic. And again, the art suits it very, very well. And uh, again, I'll call out Aftershock for being just an incredible uh, place for for spotting talent, right? That uh, maybe maybe the series wouldn't exist any anywhere else. You know, Aftershock they seem to have a real eye for uh, for new talent when it comes to to writers and artists. So kudos to uh to joe pruitt and mike martz and um lee kramer and all those guys over there at uh at aftershock uh all right up next jay's next book uh silver coin we're up to number three uh this issue is written by ed brisson lines and letters by michael walsh colors by michael walsh and tony marie griffin um this was a brutal <laughs> this was a brutal issue that ed brisson guy doesn't pull punches what'd you think jay it was good. Uh, the, what caught me was the the title "Death Rattle," and um, I don't want to be morbid, but being in the military, I've dealt with you know people passing on, and I was like, "Yeah, I know what that is." So I was curious where they're going with the story. Um, it's kind of I don't want to give away too much, but it's just uh, three people that break into a house. Um, they just try to rob the, the place. Then I'm getting the coin. The one of the one of the uh, the female out of the three. And it kind of opens, uh, I guess, a possession, I guess you would say. And from there, it just gets bloody and crazy because it's just pretty much what makes the coin makes her do. It's crazy. Just so, you know, it can go back to where it needs to go. But there are a lot of clues in there. If you actually read the book, you'll be like, well, is that character from this first story? And what's going on with this? There's, there's a little, uh, if you got to pay attention, I think that's what I, I kind of got from the series, like the artist's. And the writers will put something in there that you got to kind of catch to kind of piece uh, things together. But it's a great uh, story. I, I, I do like the stories. They're all different, unique. But I think now they're trying to tie them together, I think. And I, I kind of like that a lot. Yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing when I read it. I was like, wait, like I thought these were all just just separate tales where the coin is just passing from one hand to another and, and kind of like a monkey's paw and causing bad things to happen. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's like some callbacks to earlier stories. So I have, I have no clue um, if they tie in together or not, but man. Um, yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was really cool. The color work is awesome. Cause everything's really dark and gloomy. You'll have some splashes of color of red um, and yellow just to highlight, you know, uh, the horrors of what's going on in the story. And then we just go back to like the dark, you know, light, uh, bluish gray colors. And I thought that was pretty smart how they did that. So they kind of focuses on uh, key items of the story. Yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And I love that each of the, each of the issues is being written by a different creator. I mean, um, and not just a different creator, but like, these are, these are really great. I mean, we've got Michael Walsh, Ed Brisson, Jeff Lemire, Kelly Thompson, Chip Zdarsky. Uh, I mean, these are fantastic storytellers. Um, you know, we've got Lemire coming next issue. And the, his his story looks, it's set in the future. It looks fantastic. 
So yeah, great, great job by Michael Walsh putting this project together, getting all these high quality creators to, uh, to contribute. Uh, all right. Next book I'm going to talk about is also um, an image book. It's from, uh, oh, there we go. Chip Zdarsky just mentioned him. Uh, he's a creator and writer, co-creator and artist is Ramon K. Perez. Mike Spicer does colors. Russ Rutan does letters. It's still water number eight. And in this one, we get the origin of their current sheriff, how she became sheriff. And it's a pretty interesting tale in the long run of what she's doing and why. Um, but I'm, I, I have to admit, like, with all the moving parts in this story, I'm getting – it's getting a little hard for me to follow. What I need to do is I need to go back and, and read, like, all – eight issues that have come out so far, like all in one sitting, because this is a complex tale. We did see at the end of issue seven, and I mentioned it when we talked about it, that there's something that happens sort of at the end of that issue that sort of throws everything that we thought we knew on its side. Um, you know, we know that somebody, so if you're not familiar with the story in the town of Stillwater, nobody can die. And so, there have been a group of people who have been making decisions for the town based on that because they don't want the government to come in and you know take them all and perform experiments and whatnot. So they needed to be sworn to secrecy, but that comes with consequences. Nobody can come into the town and nobody can leave the town. Um, and a woman and and you don't age. That's another part of it. So a woman actually was able to smuggle her baby out, and he grew up outside the town, and then he comes back. And he's sort of our POV character as he's discovering sort of the horrors and the, the horrible things that go on in this town to keep the secret and to, you know, keep everybody alive. And it's like, okay, if you could live forever, but you could never leave your town, like, it's almost like, what's the point of living, right? Uh, if you're not the one of the ones in power calling, calling the shots. And so at the end of the last issue, we find out that the kids of the town, the younger generation, maybe they're not growing in terms of physically, but they're really smart and they've actually created a, their own society and they know a lot more than a lot of the adults in the town. I say adults, you know, like the, the people that have aged to adulthood because they're all older than their actual ages. And these kids have knowledge and wisdom far beyond their physical looking age because they have been along, alive so long and they have their own ideas of how to overthrow and have their own freedom and things like that. And so I thought we'd get some of that story in this issue eight, but we don't. Instead, we find out um, about the sheriff of the town and, and how she comes into the town and what she's all about. And we don't get any of the POV character or any of what the, is going on with the kids. I'm perfectly fine with that because this is a great story and it gives a lot of context um, with some of the other things that are going on. Uh, but again, I, I do feel like there's more. I'm going to get more out of this issue when I sit down and read reread issues one through seven. Um because there's a there's a few little nuance and things that are going on that I, I might be missing. Um, and even with me missing those things, this is still a spectacular issue. And uh, I'll also call out the way that um, Ramon, Ramon K. Perez lays out some of his panels in this issue. They are, they're awesome. They really, really are. Um, there's particularly a scene between the, sh the old sheriff and the new sheriff where they're sitting on the floor of her apartment. Um, and there's these long panels that go all the way across the page that are just fantastic. Um, so it's, it's really great art. It's detailed. The colors by Mike Spicer very much sort of suit the sort of spooky nature of the story. 
there's uh, that level of supernatural to it. And it's just a great story. Um, you know, Zdarsky is really good at telling emotional tales, maybe the best writer in comics right now at telling emotional tales. And at, at its heart, that's what this is in a way. In, in a way, it's a, a family drama, right? But instead of a family, it's a very small town, which as if you grew up in a very small town, you know, can very much be like a family. Um, and families don't always get along. They don't always have the same sort of opinions or see things the same way or, or make the same decisions or react to situations the same way. So uh, it's very well suited for that type of story. And uh, I, could, I could definitely see this becoming a TV show at some point too. It's a fascinating uh, sort of societal experiment. Like what if you couldn't die, right? It's really, really cool. So, uh, so anyway, I, I think it's fantastic. And uh, I definitely recommend you checking it out. Uh, all right, on to Jay's last book. It's from writers Declan Shelby and Rory McConville. Uh, Joe Palmer is the artist. Chris O'Halloran does the colors. Hassan Atman Elhow does the letters. It's Time Before Time, issue two. Um, time travel story. The first issue was really established some really cool rules about time travel. Nothing, you, you cannot change anything in the past. Nothing in the past can be changed. Um, if you try to change something in the past, something will always prevent you from changing it. So with that thrown out the window, you know, what can you do with a, a time travel story? And Declan has found a, a really interesting uh, way. Basically, there's these, uh, they're almost like crime syndicates in a way. In fact, one is called the syndicate and the other is called the union. And they basically use time travel to, like, if you're a wanted person, wanted fugitive, if you murdered a bunch of people, serial killer or you know, embezzled millions of dollars or whatever, they'll take you into the future or they'll take you into the past. They'll hide you somewhere throughout time where you can live out the rest of your life. Or if you don't want to be bald anymore, well, guess what? Far in the future, they have a cure for baldness. You can buy the, the drugs, the future drugs. Uh, if you have cancer and cancer is cured in the future, you can buy, you can buy cancer drugs on the, on the black market from one of these sort of crime syndicates. And so it's really, really interesting. Um, and in the first issue, we meet a couple of the guys that work for one of the syndicates. Um, and then things go completely off the rails from there. Um, and uh, the first issue ends on somewhat of a cliffhanger. And then this issue picks up on that. So uh, what did you think of this one, Jay? Well, from the first issue, it had me, uh, it had me hooked. It's a good story. Like I said, you can't change the past. So it's like, well, you can pretty much do a free-for-all. The only question we haven't got to yet, maybe we'll get it down the road, is like, where are these machines coming from? They never yeah. say who who creates them and how these two factions get them. I mean, there's a short-range one, there's a long-range one. They all do different sorts of things. You're like, okay, so there's a lot more to it. The main character, uh, Tatsu, he uh, wants to get away from the syndicate, so him and his best friend, you know, like from the first one, had a plan to get away, but it didn't turn out too well for his best friend, so he just told him, you need to get out, out of there. So in the last issue, we saw him get into a uh, long-term one with uh, FBI agent uh, Nadia Wells is the other, I guess, key character. These two are stuck, but they don't tell you uh, where they land, you know, in, in the second issue. They're just trying to figure out, you know, what's what's where, where they're at and what they got to do next. Of course, the uh, syndicate is, uh, I guess, the boss isn't too happy. So he's trying to figure out where they're at so he can, so he can get, you know, get them back because he owes them money because he destroyed that machine. And that's when we get a little more uh, backstory of uh, who the union is, you know. So if they show up, um, Tatsu has an idea uh, of how he can kind of uh, manipulate so he can get a deal out of uh, the union, you know, uh, from, from that. 
we don't know the whole story behind Nadia too much. We know she's a FBI agent, but we don't know who if she's working, you know, independent or what's her, her what's her story on that one. So there's a lot of questions going on, but there's a, it's it's a fun story. And I just leave it at that because I don't want to give away too much, but it's it's fun. I enjoy it, and uh, we're gonna I just want to see where they go with it. Yeah, I mean, originally, you know, you hear time travel story, and you think, okay, it's going to be a, a time travel story. Like we 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 all know time travel stories. We've all seen, you know, Back to the Future and whatnot. Um, but what I didn't expect was I, I didn't expect the the sort of level of. Uh, I mean, when you talk about Declan Shelby, I, I do, and, and creator own stuff. I do sort of expect it to be in some ways uh, crime noir. Like I think he, that's kind of in his wheelhouse. And I didn't think I was going to get that with, with this story. But then, you know, as this issue plays out, we find out, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe it is a little more crime noir than we, uh, than we had originally thought um, with these different syndicates and, and whatnot. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty good story uh, so far. So, um, all right. Next book I'm going to talk about is uh, X Corp number two. This is from writer Tinny Howard. The art is by Alberto Fochi. The color is by Sonny Go. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Designed by Tom Muller. Um, and it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting book. You know, I said after the first issue, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. After the second issue, I'm still not quite sure what to make of it. I, I talked about it being very much. Um, a battle of the boardroom and politics and, and, you know, big business and big pharma and all the politics and kind of backstabbing and double crossing that goes on. And so in a way it's a very political book and it sort of suits the level of drama you need for a good comic book story, almost more so than the stakes of, you know, mutants fighting evil villains or, or what have you. Um, but I'm just not sure if it suits the X-Men corner of the Marvel universe that well. Um, I mean, we're certainly learning that uh, Monet St. Croix has uh, almost a, a different morality, a different set of rules that she lives by. And I mean, she certainly makes some questionable moral decisions when it comes to running her company. Um, but it, it's for the good of, of mutants, right? Then you have Warren Worthington, the third, he's sort of like the angel, the one who will make the, the, correct moral choices. So it's an, it's an interesting, it, it's very, it's a very well done comic technically. Um, it's, it's fantastic technically. Um, but I, I can't decide after, um, after two issues, if I like it or not yet, which is really, really strange. Um, but the art is fantastic and uh, the action, um, you know, you would think, Oh, it's, it's a, it's a book about an X-Men corporation. It's not going to be, it's going to be boring, right? But it's not boring at all um, because you're taking those ideas of boardroom and big business and the, you know, machinations and politics that go on behind the scenes and you're adding in, you know, mutants with powers um, and the whole idea of Krakoa and this mutant drug and medicine that um, can help mankind and what have you. And so, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a damn good book. Um, but I, again, I just, I wonder how it suits the rest of, um, the X universe. And again, I'm behind, I'm behind on my, my X men reading. So it's, it's hard for me to say, um, and that's on me. Uh, but I think, 
I would be curious. So once again, I'll ask for people to reach out to me if you're uh, all caught up on the X-Men reading and you've read the first couple issues of X-Corp. What do you think of it? Uh, let me know. Uh, the other book that I wanted to talk about was um, was Patron Project number three um, from Steve Orlando. I think it comes out tomorrow, but I'm not 100% sure. So it, I see it on the list of of like the comic list of books that come out tomorrow. But on my preview copies, it had the release date listed as June 30th. So I didn't read it. Um, and so I feel bad because I definitely would want to talk about it if it does come out tomorrow because um, I've been loving Patron Project. It's been very, very emotional. Um, but unfortunately, like I said, I, I just didn't read it. And, I, and I'm afraid it does come out tomorrow and I'm not going to be able to uh, to talk about it. So I may read it once we're done, <laughs> once I'm done producing this episode and getting the webpage up and everything, and then still tweet about it tomorrow. But I, I can't, I can't give any more than that. You want to talk about spoiler free. I can't, I can't tell you anything about the issue or my thoughts about it. Cause I haven't read it yet. Um, but if it's as good as the first two, then I definitely recommend picking it up. Everybody, Steve Orlando is the writer. Uh, Patrick Piazza Lunga is the artist. Carlos Lopez on colors. Hassan Atzman Alhau does the letters. And uh, yeah, I do expect it to be very, very good. I can't wait to read it. Uh, I'm going to stay up late, even later so I can read that before I go to bed. Uh, but yeah, that that is the third Aftershock book that's out today in addition to uh, Seven Swords and Silver City. Uh, but there is the Kaiju Score Volume 1 trade paperback. And I talked about all those issues too because again, Aftershock is killing it. And that Kaiju Score was a really fun series mashing up the idea of kaiju stories with heist stories. And I'm not a big kaiju guy, but I love a good heist story and it was a good heist story. So if, you, if you're into kaiju or you're into heist or you're into both, you'll probably want to pick it up. It's really, really fun issue. Uh, over at Boom Studios, Berserker number three of 12, the uh, Matt Kent and uh, Keanu Reeves project. Uh, latest issues out, Many Deaths of Layla Starr, number three of five from Rom V. Uh, which a lot of people are singing the praises of. Uh, Seven Secrets, number nine, latest issue of uh, Tom King's creator-owned over at Boom, which apparently has a really big reveal as well, because uh, he was talking about big reveal in Seven Secrets as well as Nightwing, uh, Nightwing 81, so you might want to check that out. Uh, at DC, these are, again, the books that we covered yesterday on the, the spoiler-filled, as opposed to this spoiler-free episode. Uh, we talked about DC's uh, Batman Fortnite Zero Point number five, then penultimate issue, next to last issue of that series. Uh, Catwoman number 32, Flash number 771, uh, Nightwing number 81, the aforementioned. Uh, Static Season 1 number one from Vita Ayala. Absolutely fantastic start to that series. Uh, her, as well as the artist Chris Cross and Nicholas Draper Ivy, do a really good job of honoring the original static series, uh, but making little change, small changes, little nuance here and there that makes it feel very modern. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the show, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, number one from Tom King. Great art by Bilquis Evely. Uh, latest issue of Superman Red and Blue, number four is out. Uh, over at uh, IDW, got the latest issue of G.I. Joe Real American Hero from Larry Hama. That's number 283. Uh, at Image, we've got some reprints. Geiger, if you've missed out on that series, uh, we've got uh, fourth printing of the first issue and the second printing of issue two. 
if you missed out on The Good Asian, there's a second printing of that. I highly recommend that series if you missed out on it the first go-round. Uh, special variant cover for the second printing by Dustin Nguyen. Uh, Jupiter's Legacy, Requiem, number one of five. That's the Mark Miller project. I think there was a Jupiter Legacy Netflix show that got canceled after one season, but that's uh, available. Uh, we did talk about Radiant Black number five, but if you missed out on that super impactful uh, Radiant Black issue four where Nathan dies, there is a second printing of that coming out tomorrow as well. Uh, Ultra Mega by James Heron number four, which uh, I think uh, Jay has been reading previously. Uh, Walking Dead Deluxe number 17. That's basically Walking Dead 17, but with color. So Robert Kirkman can make even more money off The Walking Dead. Uh, that's out as well. Uh, over at Marvel, in addition to the books that we talked about, there is a Demon Days Mariko number one that uh, ties into the X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe, Mariko being uh, Wolverine's long-suffering uh, love, uh, which should have married, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's also Mighty Valkyries number three of five, New Mutants number 19, uh, Star Wars number 14, which ties into the War of the Bounty Hunters, which I uh, apologize for again that we're, we're behind on those, but we will be talking about Star Wars number 14. Special Spotlight issue will be out on Friday. Hoping to have the previous two, one out tomorrow, one out Thursday, so you get three episodes of uh, Star Wars three days in a row. Uh, also, Venom number 35 is out from Marvel tomorrow. Uh, that is the, technically, it's supposed to be the the and f as far as legacy numbering goes, the 200th issue of Venom. And I, if I'm not mistaken, it's the last Donny Cates issue of uh, Venom. So if you're a fan of Venom, probably want to check that out. I am not. And so I, uh, I did not read it, but uh, you might want to check that out. Uh, and over at Valiant Visitor, number six of six, that's the uh, Paul Levitt's written uh, miniseries over at Valiant that comes to uh, an end tomorrow as well. So those are a few of the other books that you might want to be on the lookout for. Uh, I think that does it. Anything else you want to add, Jay? Oh, no, I just want to say uh, the Aftershock is killing it. If you're not reading any of those titles, you're missing out because they're all pretty good. And uh, I don't think you get Scout Comics, but I do like Steak. That comes out too, number four. That's actually been a fun read. She's a uh, main character's angel. She's like a vampire slayer. It's actually pretty fun. Yeah, I hear good things about Scout, but yeah, they're not really on my on my radar. Um, them and Vault. Uh, Vault puts out some decent stuff as well. I am reading from Vault uh, Blue Flame from Christopher Cantwell, but yeah, we probably need to pay a little more attention to some of those uh, other titles. But uh, anyway, I think that's going to do it, everybody. Uh, as always, want to thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, covered a lot of books, 15 books on this issue, uh, on this episode, uh, and, and a lot that I'm just not sure how people are feeling. So uh, yeah, if, you, if you're reading some of those books that I mentioned, please, please, please reach out on social media. Let us know your thoughts. Really curious what people are thinking of some of those titles. Uh, so again, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. 
All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.